I think we all have it. That one moment that changes everything in our lives and makes it so that we will never look at anything the same again. For one family in Carmel, New York, that came on an April day in 1995. I'm Christina. And I'm Kristen. And today on The Real Crime Podcast, we will be discussing the still unsolved missing persons case of Robin Francis Murphy. Kristen and I will be taking a bit of a detour from our norm to cover a listener suggestion. A friend of mine and a member of the Carmel, New York Police Department reached out to make this suggestion. And when I read about it, I knew we had to shed a little light on this missing missing persons case that's just a little too close to home. A lot of our information today came from the Charlie Project, which is a website that we have used as a resource before that specializes in showcasing unsolved missing persons cases. They actually do a missing person of the week each week that highlights an unsolved case and just gets the word out. They are also a resource to find out who to contact with information. So in this case, if you have any information to share about the whereabouts of Robin Francis Murphy or evidence that could link her to the person responsible for her disappearance, please contact the Carmel Police Department at 845-628-1300 or feel free to contact us directly and we will pass along any and all vital information to the investigating agency. So Robin Murphy appears to have been pretty much your typical 1995 teen. I don't know, Kristen, if you looked at pictures of her or not. I did. Yeah. So she looked like she listened to Kurt Cobain. Exactly. Exactly. A little rebellious, definitely into some grunge music, uh, very rock and roll in personality. Robin hadn't always made the best choices, but to those around her, she was at this point in her life where she was really getting things on track. She had actually dropped out of high school, but intended to re-enroll very soon. She wanted to finish in order to get her diploma so that she could actually go back to college or go to college to become a journalist. Uh, That's according to an article for the New York Times from back in 1995 when she first went missing. And I feel like there's a level of irony to that, that, you know, so so much journalistic time would be spent on her disappearance. Right. And uh, that's something that she wanted to go into. She wanted to kind of shed light on things. And so I feel like we kind of owe it to her in a way, you know. So the 17 year old was she was tall. I mean, to me, she was about five, nine. Everyone's tall to you. Exactly. She, she was tall, slender, bright blue eyes, friendly smile. She actually nat- naturally had auburnish brown hair. But, you know, 90s fashion, she had box dyed it black for 
definitely a more grungy look, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she regularly dressed in all black, but on the day of her disappearance, she was wearing a black and white plaid shirt, probably wrapped around her waist, just a thought process, but that would be me. That was definitely the style. Exactly. And apparently it is now. It, it's so bizarre. And torn jeans, black stockings underneath, which is like, oh my God, can't even black boots. You are literally describing the outfit that Olivia, my best friend's 13 year old. Right. Wore to my birthday. A thousand percent. <laughs> I see them all the time, like walking around. Like it, it's, it's one of those kind of iconic nineties fashion outfits. I mean, I'd actually put money on the fact that the black boots were Doc Martens. It doesn't mention the brand, <laughs> but I, I would definitely put money on that or at least knockoffs, you Sounds know? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that was so the look then, and it is a thousand percent the look now. I can't get over the tears in some of these jeans that girls are rocking right now. They're not jeans. No, they're not. They're shorts. Like, they're, <laughs> they're shorts with, like, gaping holes in the front of them. And I'm like, am I that old? But, I mean, they look cool. So, whatever. It's, I, we did it. Whatever. Right. That's what everyone 30 years old and older thought of us. Exactly. Exactly. And they're like, oh, God. So, I love it. So, you know, around the time that Robin had gone missing, it was almost Easter. So Easter was approaching on April 16th of that year. This is 1995. And prior to the 9th, which is the last time that Robin was seen, she had actually already purchased candy and Easter baskets for her younger brother and sister and hid them in the closet. She also had an older brother, but she had one younger brother and sister. She also had tickets to go to Poughkeepsie on April 10th and see the Ramones perform. So these are not acts of someone who was planning on disappearing. Well, exactly. She had plans. She had a future that she was looking forward to. She was looking ahead, you know? So to me, that proves this isn't a case of self-harm. This isn't a case of just walking away from life. This is someone who had the intention to keep moving forward and something stopped her in her tracks, whether it was an outside force, whatever it happens to be. So let's let's talk about her actual disappearance. On April 9th in 1995, Robin had plans to meet with a guy named Howard, Howard J. Gom- Gombert. Gombert? I'm going to say Gombert. Gombert. Okay, Gombert. I don't like him as a person. No, nobody does. Nobody does. (laughs) That's how I'm going to say his last name. Gombert. The least fancy Uh, way. The least attractive way. (laughs) So Robin had told her mother, Judy Murphy, that she was taking the car, which was a red Oldsmobile, to a shopping center up the street to meet a friend and wouldn't be long. So after meeting with Howard Gombert, the plan was that Robin would then head over to the Burger King in the shopping center and meet her boyfriend, Matt Esposito, who worked there. Needless to say, she never made it to see Matt. The family Oldsmobile that she had been in was found in the shopping plaza where she had been. And it was a a shopping plaza that was actually like less than a mile from her house. It was incredibly close to her family home. Yeah. Just days after she disappeared. Her wallet, keys, purse, and checkbook were located in a grassy marsh area behind the shopping center where the car had been found. Initially, there was really very little for investigators to work with. And frankly, I'm going to assume that a busy police department saw this as a a runaway and likely didn't dig too deep. 
because I, I, you know, I find in a lot of missing persons cases, even runaway cases, you get these circumstances where the parents are like, they would never run away, you know, like they're right. not that kind of person. But they are. Well, and and sometimes they are. And so, like, the police have to do whatever their instinct tells them to do in these cases. This was 95. I think there's a lot more pressure on police departments now to follow through immediately Definitely. and use every resource for every single person that's reported, regardless of whether they think it's going to end up as a runaway or not. And, you know, maybe that's how it should be. It's, you know, it's hard to judge because there's different circumstances for everything. But in this case, the police did not do that in the moment. And Murphy's parents, especially her mother, Judy, were very vocal about the fact they just didn't feel that the department did enough, you know? Now, we in the world of true crime here know that the most important time to collect information and evidence is in those first few days after a person goes missing. Now, I've I've watched enough episodes of Disappeared to know that. So (laughs) by the time her things were found, it was maybe a little more obvious to everyone that there was some foul play involved, but it was just too late. Right. Unfortunately, they had waited too long. Too long. Exactly. So... You know, Judy's mom, as we said, she was way too practical. Uh, Robin was way too practical to run away without all of her things. And to me, even if she wasn't practical, she's got a car, she's got keys, she's got a wallet, she's got a purse, and she's dumping all of that and taking off. That doesn't make sense. No. Why take the car? Why bother when you're in walking distance anyway? So Matt Esposito, the boyfriend of Robin, whom, you know, she had been going to visit, he was questioned at the start. He was looked into. He was never really named a suspect. But I think in these type of situations, there's always this like social determination of who's guilty. And I'm sure that a lot of people in town probably suspected that he had something to do with it or was in some way involved. I mean, you always look at the people. Always, always look at the spouse and or or the the partner of some kind. Right. So then there's this guy Robin was going to meet at the laundromat, Howard J. Gombert Jr., since that's who we've decided we're going with. Now, you see, Gombert was 31 and was dating a friend of Robin's. Just a gentle reminder in here that Robin was 17. Gombert's disgusting. Right. So Gombert wanted to ask Robin for help on some issues that he and his girlfriend had been having. Now, uh, again here, Robin was 17. So he's eliciting advice. From a 17-year-old. As a 31-year-old man. Right. So so even if he was dating an older friend of Robin's, like let's say someone in their 20s, right? It's still really weird. To go to with a 17-year-old for advice and not be a 31-year-old who can navigate your own relationship issues. Right. It's total, if I'm being totally frank, it's bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. According to an April 21st, 1995 phone interview, which Gombert gave from Danbury Hospital after a suicide attempt. Which was only a few days after. Right. Gombert was hoping that Robin could meet with him at the coin-operated laundromat he worked for on Route 52 in Carmel, and that he could convince her to talk to his girlfriend and smooth things over. And yes, like we just said, soon after Robin disappeared, this guy attempted suicide and landed in Danbury Hospital. So that's weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's We've seen it before in unsolved murder cases where people commit or attempt suicide and It's one of those things where you always have to wonder what's on the other side of that investigation because, like, did they dig deep enough? 
you know, is is there information? And of course, there's information that the police know that we don't know. But to me, from that moment, he would have been my number one suspect. Exactly. And I, I, I would agree. have been like the dog with the bone, you know, just like not letting it go. So according to him, you know, they spoke for about five to ten minutes. He and Robin did. And then she was going to go make a phone call to a guy named James. I, I couldn't find a lot elaborated on who this guy might have been. And Do you then, think that if this was the story he was going with, he'd right. come up with, you know, some explanation of who right. James who's, is? Who's James? Why was she calling James? Right. And then visit her boyfriend, Matt Esposito. The interaction, if accurate, seems innocent enough. But after that five to ten minute chat with Gombart, Robin was never seen again. Okay, so again, prime suspect. Prime suspect, a thousand percent. Now, at the time that this article was published in 1995, uh, according to the article itself, it says that Gombert was not actually considered a suspect in her disappearance. But, and yes, there's a but, not really the kind that you want, but let's chat about this, Mr. Gombert, shall we? Yes, please. Okay. And why we think he's a disgusting human. <laughs> exactly. So, dear Howard is currently serving a 30-year sentence right here in Connecticut at the, uh, what is it, the McDougal Walker Correctional Institution, to be exact, for sexual assault. Now, raise Surprising. your hand if you saw that coming. Absolutely. Um, so, in 2000, he was arrested for sexually assaulting his girlfriend and an eight-year-old girl. He also had not one, but two dismissed rape cases from Putnam County, New York, dating back as far as 1991, prior to Robin's disappearance. And one of the victims was 13 years old. So I actually heard that that one went as far as the courtroom where the victim recanted. Recanted, yeah. In court. In court. And she was probably terrified because I can only imagine because being a 13 year old rape standing victim. Standing up to him. Right. And that's And he was probably not easy. eyeing her. And, and honestly, her death glares. that's not easy. That's not easy for a mature adult woman to no. do. So the idea that a traumatized, broken 13 year old was able to go that far with it to me is like heroic right there because right. it's not an easy thing to do. So, you know, clearly this guy doesn't discriminate on age when it comes to women. Frankly, Robin kind of falls right into that category of you know, who he seemed to be interested in. Any woman. Honestly, any age group. Then during the arrest... Right. I should say any female. Any female. Because she was not yet a woman. Right, 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 right. So as we mentioned in 2000, he was arrested for sexually assaulting. And, and during that 2000 arrest, a pair of underwear was found hidden in a suitcase in Gombert's girlfriend's house. Do you know where she lived? Yeah, I do. I do, I do, and we're going to totally talk about okay. it, because it was really one of those, like, what? Um, talk about, like, too close to home. You know, that's <laughs> honestly how it got there. So during that arrest, they find this underwear. There was DNA found in this underwear, so it was a dirty pair of women's underwear. And guess who it belonged to? None other than Robin Murphy. Now, this guy had no explanation for this other than, well, you know, he happened to know her and happened to work at a laundromat and when he knew her and she did her laundry there. And it's like, come, come on. So, so you stole it? So you stole a pair of her dirty underwear? Like, mm. come on, dude. Now, in 2001, 
it was announced that a new piece of evidence had been located, but that unfortunately never panned out. You know, according to a Reddit post by Always Sunny and Upstate, this evidence was a piece of jewelry found in Gombert's car during the 2000 arrest right here in good old New Milford, Connecticut, by the New, Fil- New Milford Police Department. And I've actually added a link in the show notes to a court document detailing that arrest and what was found and seized by the New Milford PD and then shared with the Carmel Police Department. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, nothing really panned out with the jewelry from what I could kind of gather. And again, I am i don't speak legalese, if you will. So it's one of those... Did you make that up? No, I totally didn't. I've heard it before. But I don't speak it. You know, it's like I can understand enough to get myself by, but I am not an attorney. And so f- basically from what I could gather... And explanations that I found for it, the girlfriend of this guy, Gombert, claimed to be missing jewelry items, and those things were then returned to her. Of course, I I could be absolutely incorrect. Now, needless to say, it's been 26 years since Robin Murphy took her mom's car to the shopping center laundromat and disappeared. Now, if Gombert, Howard J. Gombert, is the guilty party, he isn't talking. But he is in jail. He is in jail. The Murphy family, they're never going to get their Robin back, but they deserve at the very least the ability to find and bury her remains. I mean, don't they? Yes, it does. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, we could try writing to him. (laughs) He's right here in Connecticut. I have zero interest in writing to him, having (laughs) any contact with him. When I was doing this research and I realized how close he was, because it's Suffield, Suffield, Connecticut, Mm -hmm. it was really one of those, like, how far Suffield? I drive further than that for work all the time. Like, I'll just hop in my car. I'll go find this guy and just ask him face to face. And I'm like, how many people have asked him this question before? It was just one of those, I, I don't know. I was so fired up. I was so agitated by it that... If he does know anything, he's not even giving her family peace. And that's miserable. Really terrible. I also added in a link about another case that he's a suspect in. It actually has to do with a murdered 12-year-old girl named Josette Wright. Now, two men were actually arrested for her murder, but then released when it was found that they were wrongly convicted. Because he did it? Hmm. Now, honestly, just Google his name. You'll find all sorts of chilling tales of... An obvious sexual predator. So, you know, honestly, thank you so much for the suggestion. I really appreciate it. Um, I didn't check and see if I could give your name, so I'm not going to. Uh, But you know who you are, so thank you. And, um, you know, thank you for being a listener, too, because it's pretty cool to think that we have someone from, you know, a a police department, a local police department, listening in on our little storytelling and stuff. So we really do appreciate it. And honestly, I know that was a short episode. Before we go, I am going to give you a little real estate bite because that was kind of moving away from the real estate. But I'm sure you can all understand why we wanted to talk about it and just kind of get the word about it out there. New Milford is our town. You know, there may be people who know us, who listen in, who know someone who knows something. Yes, it's been 26 years, but but it's really crazier things. Exactly. Crazier things have happened. So any little detail if you know the people involved if you know the girlfriend if you know honestly anything that you think might help even if it's something that you think oh man they probably looked into that just share it i mean there's there's literally no harm in sharing it um because it could be that missing piece it could be that missing puzzle piece so and before we go i i have um a kind of wild real estate related case that i sort of stumbled on while i was doing some research for other stuff and 
It's really not enough for an episode, but I really, I just wanted to put it out there. It takes us to Florida because bad things happen to realtors in Florida. Always. And literally, always, it, it. I mean, a lot. it's like the most dangerous state to be a real estate agent. Half of the realtors that we cover that have, have gone missing have were been Florida. in Florida. Exactly. Exactly. So Stefano Barbosa was a South Florida real estate agent. On February 1st of this year, 2021, Barbosa went to meet some clients for signatures. Now, after meeting with his clients, he was just standing by his car, probably texting, calling somebody, because that's what all realtors do after a client meeting. We look at our phones and we then, you know, reconnect with the 25 people that we missed while we were in a meeting, (laughs) because that's the only time anybody ever calls you. He was approached by a teen. Then the teen pulls a gun on him. Now, Barbosa got into the car, gun still pointed at him, as the teen climbed into the passenger seat. They went to two ATMs where Barbosa withdrew a total of $1,000. After that, it is said that the teen, now identified as Henry Lewis, who was only 15 years old, crazy. That's really crazy. So crazy. Shot Barbosa in the chest. Lewis fled from the car, and Barbosa, still driving with a bullet wound to the chest, drove into a fence and a palm tree in front of 500 Northwest 19th Avenue in Fort Lauderdale. The homeowner called 911, but Barbosa couldn't be saved. It was just too late for him. Now, luckily, Lewis, who was actually in custody for another offense, was then charged with the murder of Barbosa. Hopefully as a... An adult. I'm I'm assuming so if there were other offenses. And there was so much video footage from like different surveillance cameras and stuff. Smart. No, not at all. You figure all ATMs have like you can see the camera staring at you. It's crazy. So I mean, honestly, for this, hopefully it's just an open shut case, but just another pleading moment from us telling you, please, please, please just be aware of your surroundings, whether you're a real estate agent or not. I mean, think about it. If Barbosa had been in his car and his car was running and that's where he was finalizing his post-meeting tasks, responding to text messages, calling someone back, checking an email, writing an email, he could have been as distracted as he wanted to be. And if someone had come up to him with a gun, he literally could just flip that bad boy into drive and hit the gas, like just gotten himself out of there. And instead, that wasn't the case. So whether you're coming home from the grocery store and it's a kind of empty parking lot or whether you're, you know, finishing up a client meeting and checking a message, we all get distracted by our phones. Be as aware of your surroundings as possible and just please be be safe out there, honestly. So that is our episode today. I don't know. I'm not talking. You, I know. You're just sort of looking at me. Kristen's a little under the weather today. Just a little. It's not COVID. It's not COVID. She got tested before coming over here, and we greatly, greatly appreciate it. My husband cursed at her because she brought illness into our house, period, but it's okay. It's totally well, actually, worth it. technically, he cursed at me because I threatened to cough on him. That's true. No, you did. You did do that, <laughs> but he deserved it. He deserved it. So, um, yeah. So... Uh, that's our episode for today. And, you know, we've got some other fun stuff coming up. And uh, actually, I think we're probably going to do a little extra recording and everything, too. So definitely keep your ears out. Uh, we love listener suggestions. So if anybody else has anything, even if it's not real estate related, that you really want to hear us cover, we would absolutely love to do that for you. Yes. You can reach out to us at Gmail. 
therealcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Or on Instagram. At The Real Crime Podcast. Or on our Facebook page. The Real Crime Podcast page. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page. Yes, definitely check out our Patreon page. And uh, you can also reach us through there if you want to. We're always posting episodes. We don't have any type of um, advertisements or anything on there. So they're up and available. And a lot of times you get early access so you don't have to wait each week. Um, Because a lot of people are impatient, much like myself. So... (laughs) (laughs) so check that out. And it's a little early to officially announce, but we've already booked our hotel. So we're pre- you know, pretty confident. We're going to <laughs> New Jersey. We'll keep you updated if anything changes. We totally will. Uh, in April of next year, 2022, we are going to be... Six months from now. Yeah, six. Oh, my God. Six <laughs> months from now. Well, five, but still. Still. We are going to be at New Jersey Horror Con at the Showboat Hotel and No Longer Casino, which is weird. The casino is gone. Oh. Yeah, it's just a hotel now. But it's right on the boardwalk in Atlantic City. <laughs> it's still where it is. They exactly. Re- relocate it. <laughs> exactly. So we um, were, you know, going to be there and uh, doing another horror show. So if you would like to come out and see us, we would love to see you. We are going to have some merchandise at the table. So um, you will be able to pick some cool stuff up. And we will be there, so you can meet us, take pictures with us, photograph us For alone. For a small fee. A small fee. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you can pay pay us money and take our photos, <laughs> basically. So, um, yeah, so that is all. And, um, yeah, thank you so much for tuning in, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. So you're going to...